My name is Bill, and it's an incredible honor to get asked to preach a service like this. So thank you for the honor, and would you pray with me that, that God would be glorified in, in us looking at his word? Father, we come to these words, and in coming to them, we recognize that we need you to send the Spirit not in that definitive sense that you once sent the Spirit, but in that immediate sense of open our hearts to hear these words and not just to hear them, but to understand them and to be changed by them. We would give you all glory if you would do that in us individually and even together right now, we pray. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, please keep it open. I tend to be a very textual guy. Um, but let me start by telling you, I remember going now quite a longer time ago to the beach with my kids, and they were young, my two girls, and so they said, Dad, we are going to build a sandcastle right here. And so we built a sandcastle, only to very quickly discover that the tide was coming in, not going out. And so as you can imagine, we were digging holes and we were making moats and we were building walls and we had absolutely no chance against the onrushing tide. And before long, in spite of every frantic effort we took, the waves took over and it, the beach was as flat as if our sandcastle had never been there. And many of us feel that way about Christianity in light of our culture. It's very easy to feel the winds of cultural change and to feel the waves buffeting the church and feel like it's only a short matter of time until, in fact, our world will be as if the church had never been here, just a flat beach. And, and by the way, this is no sort of rant on one side or the other side of the political aisle. If you tend to be on the conservative side, you think, wow, the culture is justifiably going, you know, it's going nuts. And... I can't imagine how the church is going to hold out against these trends. On the other hand, if you're on the more progressive side politically, you say, I don't understand how it could be that people who call themselves Christians do these things that Jesus himself would just shake his head at in either disgust or distraught. How can, how can, how can an authentic Christianity, the church that it's supposed to be, possibly stand up against these waves that batter it? Will it not be just as flat as if it was never here? How do we live in the middle of that situation? Well, my, my suggestion to you this morning is going to be that Jeremiah's letter answers that question. Now, let me back up a bit. This letter is written near the end of Judah's time as an independent nation. So if you know of or have heard of the kings David and Solomon way back, after David and Solomon's reign... God's people split into two separate nations. You could sort of, it's the nation of Israel up top, the nation of Judah in the south. You could call them the Yankees and the rebels or the Yankees and the southerners or however you want to approach it. They got along about that well. They invaded each other. They attacked each other. They were at war with each other. And this lasted for a couple hundred years. After about 200 years, the resurgent, what we call the Assyrian Empire, one of the sort of biggest, baddest empires of the ancient world, flattened that northern kingdom and eliminated it from the map, never to be seen again. About a hundred years after that, 
the newly resurgent Babylonian Empire starts doing the same thing to the southern kingdom of Judah. And three times they conquered Judah, and what they would do is they would take the elite of society, the leadership, the business, anyone who had sort of something to them, they would march those folks back to Babylon for what could only honestly be called a forced re-education campaign. And it was sometime in the middle of those three conquerings that you get this letter. Jeremiah the prophet is still back in Jerusalem, which has been conquered but not destroyed. And he sends this letter to some of those folks who have been marched out to Babylon for what is called an exile. And so this is the letter that we're looking at from God's word. And it raises just this question, what do you do when the world changes on you? because their world had changed dramatically on them. And here's what I'd suggest it says to you and me this morning. It says that when the world's changing like this, when we feel unmoored, when we can't imagine how our faith or our church or historic Christianity is going to last, we can actually take comfort and faith because God's in control of this. Because even this is God's idea. And I'll, I'll suggest just three things. To, we, this morning, need to think about the fact that God has placed us here. The fact that someday he will bring us home. And the fact that he's given us work to do right now. So let me start with the first, that God has put us here. This is certainly true if you look at Jeremiah of those folks in exile. God put them there. And that's quite something for the prophet to say. Now, you might say, wait a minute. I'm pretty sure the Babylonians put them there. They're the ones who attacked. They're the ones who picked the people to exile. They're the ones who marched them back a thousand miles to Babylon. They're the ones who conquered the city. In fact, verse 1 actually says that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, is the one who put them into exile. Well, sure, but then look at verse 4. In verse 4, God says, to all those that I took into exile. And then he says it again in verse 7. All those who I have carried into exile. So, Wait, did, did the Babylonians take them into exile or did God send them into exile? Well, yes. The, the point that God's making here is that no matter what is going on, his control is still true. I mean, Babylon didn't know that. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know that. Of course, he was pretty sure this was his idea, his plan, his success, his work, his military, his power and control. But God is making the point that behind any human leadership, he's still ultimately the one in control of this world. And it doesn't matter what leader it is of what country, ours or another, God says nobody does anything except by my power and permission. Sure, Nebuchadnezzar may be the proximate cause of this exile. God says, but I'm the ultimate cause. I'm in control of this thing. I sent them there. Now, understand that if you are reading this letter as a Jew living in Babylon in exile... It's like him dropping a bombshell on you. That's a hard thing to say because life in Babylon was hard. I mean, let's start with this. How did they get there? They got there because they had lost on the battlefield. They had seen what happens when an ancient army overruns a city. They had seen brothers and fathers and sons run through with swords and spears. They had seen people impaled on stakes and left to die in the Middle Eastern sun. They had seen women of all ages, well, you know what an invading army would do. They had seen horrors of warfare. 
Um, my wife, way back, if you remember the movie Saving Private Ryan when it came out, my wife looked at her uncle who had been in Vietnam. He'd flown in Vietnam, and she said, are you going to go see the movie? He said, I know what war's like. I don't need anybody to show me. Well, these people knew what war was like because they had lost it. And if that's not enough, notice that the letter is sent, it says, verse 1, to the surviving elders among the exiles. Why, why that word? Why the surviving ones? Well, remember, they had been marched a thousand miles around what you may have heard called the Fertile Crescent by troops who honestly didn't care that much if they lived or died and whose lives would be a lot easier if they'd just die on the way. Most of them had died in the death march. This letter is to the few who made it to Babylon. And let me tell you about Babylon, by the way. Babylon was the center of the world, both educationally and culturally at their time. Um, it was a hypersexualized society. It was where people went to get their way on and up. It was a very pagan society, very polytheistic in the sense that they would welcome another God in as long as you didn't make some crazy claim like the Jews did that your God was the one true God. That deserved scorn. And so they lived in Babylon as a despised and scorned cultural minority. Look at Psalm 137 sometime if you want to get some sense of what it, they thought it was like to live in Babylon. Well, to be told this is God's idea, that's, that's, a, that's a big thing to digest, isn't it? Because life in Babylon was hard. And, and I, I hope you see where I'm going with this. A hypersexualized society that's highly educated, that's trying to see people make their way up in the world. I mean, what am I describing? I can be describing practically anywhere USA, certainly in a university town. Um, I could be describing where you live and I could be describing where I live. And in doing that, I'm actually not making a jump. The book of 1 Peter, near the end of your New Testament, makes exactly this case. So listen to the first two verses of Peter's letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. To God's elect, well, what does that term mean? Well, he defines it in the second verse. Who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. So Peter's writing to Christians, Christians who are scattered throughout their known world, and he calls them exiles, elect exiles. In other words, to people like you and me, he says, you're exiles because you're not living in your home. Now, um, I might add, at the point when this gets written, the guy on the throne is a chap you may have heard of. His name is Nero. Now, he hadn't gone absolutely crazy. He wasn't burning Christians at the stake yet. But they are in exile. They are scattered through their world because they're persecuted. And the persecution they felt was mainly social and economic. But they suffered a difficult life in a culture that did not agree with what they believed. And Peter calls that being in exile which means suddenly Jeremiah's letter is not a letter to a bunch of people 2,800 years ago. It's a letter that matters to you and me. It's important to say that because sometimes life here can be hard. Now, it's not as hard as it probably was for Peter's audience. It's certainly not as hard as it was for the Babylonian, people living under Babylonian oppression. But there are times where we have to recognize 
it can be a hard life. And so it's incredibly important to realize God has put us here. We're not here by accident. We're here by his will and his control. And that leads really quickly then to the second question. Well, someday God's going to take us home. You see, when, when we recognize that we live here under God's control, we also immediately need to recognize that we do not live as people who have no hope. We live as people who know that God has got us, that he is in control, and that God is going to do with us what he ought. Look down at verse 10 if you've got your Bible still open. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise and bring you back to this place. Remember Jeremiah's writing the letter from where? Jerusalem. So to these people in exile, Jeremiah writes his letter and he says, God is going to take you home. There will come a time where you will get to go back to your home. For them, their home was Jerusalem. It would come, if you read verses 11 to 14, that there would come a time they would repent. God would bring them home. He would restore their hope. They may live in Babylon for now, but someday they could trust God was going to take them back home. Well, to you and me, he says the same thing. Our hope is not that we live in this world but that in fact someday God will take us home. The Bible calls it at the very end of the Bible, the new Jerusalem. Listen to the book of Revelation chapter 21, first four verses. <clears throat> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. We are people who live here, but we live here in the hope and the knowledge that someday God will take us home. And what that means is we can live in the world without being crushed by the world. And we can recognize that our hope is not just more of this. I, I, if you're here and you're not a Christian today, if you're online and you're not a Christian, it, it'd be very easy to hear Christians keep talking about eternal life and think, are you kidding? Do you realize how, how stinky my life has been in so many ways? More of this for eternity? That sounds terrible. That's not what the gospel offers you. It doesn't offer you an eternal life of cancer and suffering and pain and divorce and anguish and abuse. The gospel offers us an eternal life of the world the way it ought to be and always will be. It calls it going home to the new Jerusalem. And what it means is we live as people who have hope. And, and that's so different from what you see. So as, as made, I can't remember if it mentioned, I live in Washington, D.C., even though I teach in New York. And um, I started actually my life in a business career, working in business consulting. <clears throat> and, and the challenge of telling my coworkers about Jesus wasn't sort of the uber pluralistic firm that I was in, though it was that. It wasn't the sort of intellectual smartness of the place, though goodness it had that. It wasn't the sort of drive that everybody there had to do well, though they had that. The biggest challenge of telling people about Jesus in my job was the fact that they just didn't feel like they needed him very much. 
I remember sitting with a friend of mine in his condo. It looked over the mall, over the Lincoln Memorial and Washington Monument, down towards the Capitol. He said, I bought a Porsche at 28. I bought a vacation, vacation home the next year. He goes, I could get anybody in the city I want. He was kind of proud of himself. Um, and, and he goes, this is my promised land. Who needs a promised land? For another example, I, um, my church that I pastor at is in McLean, Virginia. There's a little government agency just down the street in McLean. If you don't know where I'm catching on, first letter is C, last letter is A, fill in the blank. Um, one of my congregants who works there, he, he mentioned something odd. He said, the place is full of Mormons. And he finally asked one of his friends who was Mormon, he said, why do you guys all work at this place? And the guy goes, well, America's our promised land, so we want to fight for it. Now, with all due respect, you know better. Now, I would rather, I think, honestly, be a citizen of our nation than any other nation on the planet. I would fight for this nation and its military. My father did. But you know, this isn't your promised land. This is where we live, but someday God's going to take us home. And we can trust that that is our hope. But that leads then to this third thing. If you want something really bad... You know how deep it gets into you? Like, if you just really want to go home. I still remember being a little tyke my first summer at summer camp. Homesick. You know, nothing tastes right. Nothing feels right. Everything's just kind of gray. Well, they just wanted to go home. And if you want something bad enough, you can almost always turn up people who are going to tell you what you want to hear. So if you look at verses 8 and 9, that's exactly what was happening. All sorts of false prophets had arisen who had said, don't worry, it's almost over. God's wrath is almost spent. You're going to be home before you know it. And God says through the prophet Jeremiah, don't you listen to them. They're preaching lies in my name. Instead, look what he says. Look back at verse 5. Oh, I'm still in Revelation. That's not going to do us much good. Look back at verse 5. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. In other words, settle in. You're going to be there for a while. <clears throat> you're not going home soon. You're going to have time to build, to plant, to harvest, to have generations Jeremiah says, those people who tell you that it's going to be over soon and you're going to be back before you know it, don't listen to them. I might add, especially if they give you a date. Instead, settle in for this to be a long life. Now, there's something much deeper going on, though, than just this being a time marker. When Jeremiah says these words to those Jews in exile, they would be remarkably life-giving. Flip back to the very beginning of your Bible, to Genesis chapter 1. Listen to what God says, having just made mankind, male and female. I'm going to read verses 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. What are these? Well, these are the two great commands God gives humanity before there's even such a thing as sin. When there is no such thing as sin, when God has first made humanity, there are two great purposes he establishes. He says, fill the earth and subdue it. The theologians love to call this the cultural mandate. God says, this is what I made you for. Multiply, increase, fill this earth with images of God. And second, subdue it. Now, subdue it, you, you and I hear that word and it has connotations of like oppression. It doesn't have them in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, subdue it means bring order to the chaos. Take a world that is swirling out of control and needs to be brought into the order that's hospitable for all things, human and not, to live well. God says before there's ever such a thing as sin, fill the earth and subdue it. Well, look back at Jeremiah. Do you realize what Jeremiah just did? Build houses, plant fields, live in them, harvest them. What are they doing? He's just repeating, subdue it. Multiply there, do not decrease, increase, fill it. Jeremiah is saying to these people who are in exile, and this is the second little bombshell he drops on them, even though they are in exile because of their sin, God has not given up on his great purposes in humanity. Even though you live in Babylon, he says, even though you're there because of your own fault, God hasn't given up on you. What you do matters. And this is really important to say, well, if I go to church here, but I work at the university, or I work in the town, why does it matter? You know, why, why would I do all this stuff? All the way from, say, making burgers, to fitting pipes, to doing high-end research, and everywhere in between, why do these things matter? Because these are the things God made you to do long before he saved you from sin, because there wasn't even sin to save you from yet. This is why there's dignity in the work of every person, every day, top to bottom, left to right, anywhere in between, because God's made you to do this work. It's why there's dignity to the work of the home. It's why raising kids is worth it. It's why there's dignity to the work of education, teaching kids is worth it. It's why there's dignity to the work of business and industry and education and everywhere in between. What you do matters to God. He says, though you're in exile, though you're scattered in the world, 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, do the work I made you to do because it's good and valuable and godly and it's worth your days and for many of you also worth your nights. Second, God says, take you home. But while you're there, until you go home, I've got work for you to do. And then that even wouldn't be the really big bombshell. Here's the really big bombshell the prophet drops. It's verse 7. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Well, remind me what they thought of Babylon. Pray for Babylon? They hated Babylon. Babylon was the enemy that had attacked them, that had destroyed them, that had ruined them. And, and God, God now through the prophet says, pray for the peace of Babylon. And the word peace, you may or may not know, is not simply the absence of conflict. It's a translation of the Hebrew word shalom. In Arabic, this would be salam. And peace is both the absence of conflict 
and positively the well-functioning of every aspect of the society or world they have. It's a well-functioning social structure, it's a well-functioning economic structure, educational structure, political structure, and everything else. He says, pray and work for the complete flourishing of the world that he's put you in, in exile in Babylon. This runs right to the core of what we need to be and what is so hard for so many Christians to be. When it's hard to live in Babylon or Champaign-Urbana or D.C. or New York or anywhere else, it's so easy to want to just pull back and withdraw and huddle up and say, we're just going to do our thing and we're not going to engage the world God's put us in. And the prophet Jeremiah says, that is not for you. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where he's put you. What would it be like to do that? Well, let me suggest three things, all just immediately from the text here. Number one, invest. Verse five, he said, build houses, plant fields, settle down. Live like you own the place. Um, for about, I don't know, the first 20 years of my working in life, working life in the D.C. area, I was always a renter. I'm sure you guys had the same effect in New York. You couldn't possibly buy into the real estate market with how ridiculously expensive it was out there. And I was a pretty good renter. I returned to places, apartments, condos, houses, whatever, to the people I rented them from in good shape. I took care of them. I tried to keep the yard in at least a somewhat decent state. But honestly, you didn't put that much into it because you knew you were moving on soon. You don't live in a rental property the way you live in a house you own. You don't care about the school down the street and what a good job it's doing or not. You don't care about the guy who won't keep the grass cut down there and makes the neighborhood an eyesore because you know sooner or later you're leaving. Well, about eight years ago, I took literally four times my net worth and slid them across the table to buy a tiny house. And do you think I relate to my neighborhood in a different way now? Do you think I care about that house down the street? Do you think I care about the school? Live like you own the place. Invest, build houses, settle down. Work for the good of your neighborhood and your city because God says that's part of what I've called you to while you're here. That's also why careers and industry and everything else are so much important because they are the means by which we invest. The vocations we have are the things we do to bless the broader world we live in. So first, invest. Second, he says, next verse, six, multiply. Increase there and do not decrease. I mean, that literally, that means, by the way, having kids is a good thing. I mean, I know raising up a little image of God is incredibly hard. Trust me, it was for your parents too, and that's okay. Do the hard work of raising and training and building Christians. By the way, the, the Bible doesn't just talk about this only in the physical means of childbearing. When somebody who doesn't know Jesus comes to know the truth of the gospel, the scripture says he or she becomes a son or daughter of Abraham. Don't be that cultural minority that just fades to black and disappears. Instead, be that cultural group that increases, that grows, that flourishes. Invest, multiply. But here's the thing. In a fallen world, sometimes you can't. In a fallen, messed up world, not everybody gets to have a job even when they're trying to have one. It ought to be so. 
It isn't always so, and not everybody gets to have a job that makes them feel like they have a huge flourishing impact on their city, though it ought to be so. And tragically, some of you know this pain that not everybody who wants to have kids manages to have kids with lots of suffering in that. In a fallen world, not everybody gets to invest the way they wish they could. Not everybody gets to multiply the way they wish they could. But every one of us has a prayer. Verse 7, pray for the peace and prosperity of the city to where I've called you. And our prayers need to be for our world and community, not against it. Now, last thought, does this start to seem like almost too much? Asking people who have been persecuted, who have suffered at the hands of this other people group to then work for that people group's good and prosperity and blessing and to pray for it, does that almost seem like taking the victim and making them sort of honor the, the, the perpetrator? Does, it, does, not, does that not seem like almost too much to ask? Well, remember when our Lord says, love your enemies, he's not starting from nowhere. And even more than that, this, when you think about it, maybe we've been thinking about this passage a little bit wrong the whole time. We've been treating it the whole time as if we are the Judeans who are in exile in our world. And that's certainly a valid way to think about the passage, as, as First Peter would have us do it. But that's not the only way we could think about this. Recognize that this is what Jesus did for us. Let me read to you out of the book of Romans. Paul writes in Romans chapter, Romans chapter 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, if we take the whole approach to this passage and say, well, I'm the good guy who just happens to be in exile, and well, you'll get partway there, but you won't ever get the power to actually pray for the peace and prosperity of your city. We get the ability to pray for the world that we're in exile in when we realize in this passage we're actually the Babylonians. We're the ones who hated Jesus. We're the ones who were in rebellion against him, who wanted nothing to do with him, and he died for us then when we were in our sin. And if you can't come to this passage and see also that actually, no, I'm the one who got died for when I was a Babylonian, not a Judean, then you're not actually to the point of feeling the gospel impacting your life. The gospel says you and I, every one of us, are sinners justly against God and deserving nothing for that other than his judgment. And yet while we deserve nothing but judgment, Christ came and died for us. That we who ought deserve nothing from him received everything. Instead, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And when we realize that, that we are in fact the persecutors who were blessed, not the persecuted who were being called, then suddenly we can interact with the world, whether it likes us or not, in an incredibly different way. We can work for the good and the peace and the success and the blessing of this city where you have been called. So God says, I've put you here. Someday I'll take you home. But until I do, I've got work for you to do right now. Invest, multiply, 
and pray for the peace and prosperity of this city to where he has put you, church. Let's pray. God, um, would you put before each of us how we should live out the words you've put to us? You are the potter, we are the clay. We put ourselves before you knowing that you are the one in charge of everything. And so we ask that you would, in fact, work in each of us to know how we could be working for the good and the blessing of this city and all of our cities. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.